All right, so let's turn your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians. Uh, if you're visiting, it's not all about uh, honey boo boo in here. Um, we really do take God's word seriously, and uh, we're working through this book. We uh, started in um, chapter 1, verse 1, and here we are in chapter 6, starting in verse 5, and this is God's word. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when one embarks on uh, preaching through a book of the Bible, as we like to do in here, uh, you know it's out there, and when, it's, when, when you're approaching it, and you're thinking about it, and you're thinking about the things that you're going to have to cover and all that, you know that there's a few things uh, that are going to be challenges ahead. And in the book of Ephesians, one of the challenges is uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, you get into this description of just who is doing what in the whole transaction of salvation, and that's a challenge because um, it challenges certain people from certain denominational backgrounds and certain, certain uh, the systems of theology and all that, and no matter where you end up on it, uh, it's still something that has to be addressed, and uh, it's a challenge. It's a, it's a challenge for a teacher to lovingly try to present truth in a gracious uh, way. Uh, another challenging thing you know was hanging out there when you, when you go to the book of Ephesians is uh, the end of chapter 5, where it moves into uh, biblical marital roles and uh, a household and all that. You know that uh, marriage uh, is difficult, that we all struggle, that uh, every time I look out at this crowd or every time I look out at that crowd, I know that there are people who are uh, working through things, and it's difficult, and um, uh, you just know that that's a challenge. You get to biblical marital roles. And so those were like the two big things. I, I, was, I was going, all right, as I, we approach this study, the two big things. And then I saw 12 Years a Slave. Has anybody seen that movie? Well, it's, uh, it's rattling. It's, um, I, I remember sitting in the theater, and I was thinking about Ephesians 6, going, wow, this is, we, we cannot approach this passage or words like this without a lot of freight. Uh, and it really, truly, since I've seen that movie, it's been bubbling on the stove since then. Um, I knew that I could not dismiss this, these verses uh, as just a mere parallel to employment. Uh, it's not just a, 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 a comparison to our work ethic or integrity on the job, even though that's a perfectly good application and it's an application I'm going to make. It's true. But it can't be reduced to just that. Neither can I do what's often done um, is uh, see something like this in the Bible, slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, and we go, oh, well, that's not like our slavery at all. You know, the American brand of slavery was horrible, and this was a different brand of slavery, so pshaw, uh, let's just kind of move on. Now, listen, it is different. It was a different scenario. People did sell themselves into slavery. People were released from slavery. Felix, 
who, before whom the Apostle Paul stood, was, had once been a slave. I mean, people were released from slavery. It was a different system. There were, there were a giant amount of people uh, in Rome. Up to a third of the people in Rome uh, were slaves, and they were releasing slaves. They had to schedule the release of slaves uh, because there were so many being released. So it was a different scenario. But all I'm saying, we cannot, as 21st century readers, approach this and just kind of gloss over our own past and pretend that it, we don't bring some freight into uh, this, this whole scene, okay? But uh, most of our problems melt away if we just stick to what I think the main idea is here. And I think that it may surprise you what I think the main idea is here is this. Nothing impedes or usurps the gospel. Now, you may look at that and go, well, how does that I thought this was about like doing a good job at work. Uh, and raising your kids well, and managing a house, and all that kind of stuff. You know, what is that? Well, I really think that's the takeaway from this passage, that nothing impedes or usurps the gospel, and um, I think you'll find that that's a very good underpinning for what we're talking about, and uh, it's, it's a lot more than uh, a, a message on why you shouldn't steal office supplies. So, let's look at our first verse, which is our first point, a servant in the master's house. Now, I realize in that point, I use the word servant over the word slave. That's not because I'm afraid to say the word slave. It's right in the passage. But Paul himself uses that word servant in concert with uh, what he's saying here. If you look at verse 6, it says, um, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And that, I put that in the point because that's really what's being fleshed out here. Is the, is the way we respond to the gospel uh, in our own context. And so th- this, this issue is just so much more than a philosophical one. When we see, ladies and gentlemen, the, at the extremity of life, you know, there are, like, there are extremes in life, right? So an extreme in life would be, mm, I don't know, being a billionaire. That would be an extreme in life, right? Being a billionaire, not a lot of those, okay? Another extreme in life would be somebody who is, born or sold or currently existing in a situation of slavery where you're owned by someone else. That's an extremity of life. That's a hard situation. It's, it's not like what we would know, but it, it's an extreme. And so you've got this um, subservience. You have someone ruling over and someone being ruled over. And per the scriptures, the whole matter is an issue of service to Jesus. And when we are over other people, we have to cherish them because they're cherished by Jesus. And that transcends all kinds of layers of life. So <clears throat> look at verse 5 with me, if you would. Slaves, <coughs> obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now let's first talk about slaves. Um, like I say, we can't help but have a freighted view of that. And... Um, you know, as a Chicago transplant to this town, you know, I was, I was a young kid and, I mean, a teeny child in the 60s. I didn't know what was going on. And I moved to Memphis. I'm like, oh, this is kind of a cool town. Oh, Memphis, so blah, blah, blah. And then it, somebody's like, hey, do you know Martin Luther King got shot here? What? I mean, that was here? And that's how sheltered I was. I mean, it's, we live in an amazing uh, place on this earth where amazing things happened and and it was a catalyst for all kinds of change and sadness and all that. And so immediately we're in conflict when we see a passage like this. We go, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. And uh, 
we go, well, it seems like it's the perfect opportunity to say, oh, by the way, slavery is bad. Or by the way, why don't you release your slaves if you're really a Christian? Let them go. Let's change this whole thing up. Come on, let's stamp it out. Or at least say slavery is inherently evil. Would you please, could we do that? You got a perfect opportunity. Why didn't the Bible do that? Well, I'm going to tell you in a minute, in about 18 minutes. But let's pause for a minute and see how this is dripping with grace. Look at verse 5 again. Slaves. Okay, let's back up a little bit. Go to chapter 1, verse 1. Paul's writing this letter. He goes, hey, I'm the apostle of Christ Jesus. Guess what? That means I've been sent. That means I have the authority to say these things, that I'm not just cooking up some little uh, system like L. Ron Hubbard, uh, but I've been sent by the Christ. I am penning what I know is holy scripture. And uh, Paul says this, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and he's writing to the saints. Now go back to our passage. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. So what is he doing? He's writing to saints who happen to be in this situation of slavery. He's writing to the the redeemed. He's writing to the elect. And what's so cool is, do you not see the dignity of grace there? That slaves here is synonymous with Christian people. And that means that these people aren't viewed as underlings. They're viewed as image bearers of God who've been purchased with the spilled blood of the Lamb. In other words, just by them showing up here, they are, the, the whole culture's flipped on its head. And he's saying, these people are redeemed people, and they are just as loved, just as valued, just as purchased. They were just as guilty, and they're just as saved as anybody else who's been, who's, who's known, who knows the Lord Jesus. I mean, that's an amazing point of dignity. They're immediately brought to this very high place on par. And if you want a, an application for your life on this, it's, it's, uh, there's a very simple one. Merit is removed. Paul is writing briskly. He's writing with a focused attention. He moves from uh, submission to one another out of reverence for Christ into biblical marital roles. He talks about parenting and so on. Um, he's talking about uh, wives that uh, purposely uh, follow their husband's lead in love, uh, men who lay down their lives for the benefit of their wives, and he moves on to these people too. And, and there's this equity amongst men and women who have been redeemed. Uh, take your finger, if you would, and flip uh, left about four pages to Galatians 3 and verse 27. This is the same Apostle Paul writing, and uh, he says this in uh, chapter 3, verse um, yeah, uh, 27. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and he continues, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, that's a gigantic point. It pulls us all the way back to Genesis 13 and 15 and and God's covenant with uh, Abraham. And basically, this, this is saying, this Apostle Paul is saying is, hey, these people who've been redeemed, men, women, slave, free, it's all neutralized. This was all part of God's plan from the very inception. 
These people were loved with an everlasting love like you were loved with an everlasting love. These people were once far away. They've been brought near just like you. The closer, ladies and gentlemen, someone gets to the heartbeat of God, the more you realize that anything that regards someone as less than human um, is against God's design. But more specifically as Christians, uh, when we see what Christ has done, it, it, it neutralizes everything. And it brings everybody to a point of very high dignity. Now, to the instruction itself back in our passage here, it says, uh, what, are these pe- what are these people supposed to do? They're living in a situation. Uh, somehow, they're born into, somehow they're brought into a place of captivity. What are they supposed to do in that reality, in that context? Well, it says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. It doesn't mean, uh, you know, try to pitch in when it's convenient for you. It means heed the word of the master. Um, and it says to do so with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, you look at that fear and trembling. It's very interesting because in Philippians, the same apostle Paul writes that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worketh in us. And he uses that same expression, fear and trembling. And it's in reference to our uh, encounter with God. It's in reference to our relationship with God. Um, and it go, he goes on to say the same kind of a thing. He says, slaves, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So he, here you have the same kind of a situation where we have a relationship with God and we're supposed to approach him with fear and trembling, not a scraping fear, not a cowering fear, not a flinching fear, but a respectful, reverential uh, awe we're supposed to deal with God. And it's saying here that that is supposed to be the slave's disposition and the application for our lives, ladies and gentlemen, is this. You know, we want to please God. Why? Well, because we love him. And our, our disposition is supposed to be, well, Lord, I don't want to let you down. Is that a bad thing? It's a very good thing. Lord, I just don't want to let you down. And if you work for somebody, if you serve somebody else, if you're, if you're trying to get it right for somebody, um, you want to serve them. You don't want to let them down. You, you want to help them. You, you want to make their life easy. I mean, that's, that, those are, that's, that's what it means to do it with uh, fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. You know, a sincere heart, that speaks to a generosity that doesn't hold back if it's sincere. And verses 6 and 7, look at them. Um, not by way of eye service. You know, that's one kind of service. That's one kind of servant, an eye servant. Not a people pleaser, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Again, rendering, um, uh, rendering service with a good will as to, as to the Lord and not men. Um, does anybody ever use a house sitter when they go out of town? Who uses a house sitter? Uh, do you expect an ecstasy-fueled rave uh, to go on in your living room and, and do you expect that? Do you expect to come back and your bed's been short sheeted? Ha 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 ha. You expect that? No. Uh, you expect that your house is going to be honored, uh, that uh, the, the, the instructions that you've left are going to be, are going to be revered, that they're going to serve with fear and trembling and regard your stuff and not want to let you down. Well, that's what I'm saying to you, is that an application of our lives is that that's the way we're supposed to view our work in this life and the hierarchy that is set before us. Again, the slavery thing, the, you know, the Bible's not commending it. 
The Bible's not putting a rubber stamp on it going, yeah, it's awesome. We ought to all do this. Not at all. The Bible is reporting it, not condoning it. The Bible is speaking to a reality, speaking to a culture, speaking to a context, speaking into it, and it's saying in that context, wherever you find yourself, guess what? Even in an extreme like this, this is an extreme. Even in that situation, nothing impedes or usurps the gospel. You still have to live as serving the Lord, not men. All right, our next point. Um, A master in the servant's life. If you look at verse 9, it says, Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. There's no partiality with him. Again, it's not an endorsement of slavery. It doesn't put a smile on the whole operation. But Paul is addressing a widespread reality that's something that is quite different than the American version. But it doesn't change the reality that it was a situation that was fertile for abuse. When somebody is somebody else's property, that's a situation that is fertile for gross abuse. Um, But, you know, the sacrifice sacrifice and uh, submission principle still applies. You notice that this passage is talking about a household. It's talking about wives and husbands in a household. It's talking about kids in the household. It's talking about, in that context particularly, slaves were very much a part of the household. They were under the the jurisdiction of the household, in the very least. And because of the radical nature of the gospel, there's no scenario that exists, no matter how extreme, that isn't under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is saying, hey, masters, guess what? You ain't the boss. You're just the master. You're just in charge of the household, but somebody's over you. We'll look at that more in just a second. So here a master is is told, masters, do the same to them. And basically it's saying, ensure, hey, master, ensure that everyone in your household is treated like Christ would treat them. If Christ were right here, and this is someone he spilled his blood to win, how would he treat them? That's how you're supposed to do it. Now, you know, this was very convicting to me, and and I I think we we tend to want to read that, and we go, okay, well, that's kind of cool for back then. That's a good instruction for back then, Uh, but how does this really apply to us? I mean, does it really, if you're really going to expand it, really take it all the way, how does it apply to my life specifically? Well, we're fools if if we diminish the scope of this. Um, it applies to you because it says that anytime somebody has power, anytime somebody has authority, anytime somebody has the advantage, anytime somebody has strength or a voice or an ability, the know-how, the means to accomplish something, that simultaneously means that there's a responsibility for those underneath you that they might flourish. So the master wasn't supposed to just uh, supply a place to live and some food, a little bit of health care. The master was supposed to, and this is radical in this day. This is what flips the whole situation on its head. And this is, by the way, uh, we'll talk about it in a second. This is one of the reasons Paul never says, hey, slavery is bad, let's kill it. He doesn't say it, but he's saying it. He's saying, masters, guess what? The whole thing gets flipped on its head. Not only do you, pl- not only do you supply for your, the, the people in your employ or in your ownership, 
but you're the caretaker of their very soul so that every little detail that happens to them needs to be important to you. Every little thing they're going to, every little, going through, every little heartache, every little challenge, everything that challenges them spiritually, it's the church. You know how it is here. I mean, you're hanging out with people that you probably never would hang out with unless you met them here at church. I mean, a lot of times you have people who are very different, different walk of life, different age, different social status, different everything. But here we are, and you feel this responsibility for him. And he's saying here, Master, you need to take care of your, your, the, the people in your household holistically. You need to care about every little detail in their life. And that changes everything about it. All right, that brings us to our last point, which is this, the master of all masters. In verse 9, as I've already read to you, it says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. There's no partiality with him. In verse 6, it says, uh, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. It goes on in verse 6 to say, Not by way of eye service as people please, but as servants of Christ. In verse 7, it says, Rendering service with a good heart as to the Lord. And so... The teaching here for, for masters and servants is, is under the Lord's careful eye, the boss, the real boss, the real master sees everything. There's a master above all masters, and that just means that a master or an owner or a dad or a parent is a steward. That's all. Now, slavery. To close. Why doesn't the Bible just say abolish slavery already? I mean, my goodness, if you look at uh, the captivity of the Israelite people for 400 years, uh, ma- making, uh, making bricks under just hard labor, suspension of liberty and rights and privileges. I mean, you just look at, you look at that. You look at the whole, uh, you look at the whole uh, idea of, um, of being set free from captivity, moving from bondage into new life, moving from one dominion into another, uh, moving from one possession to another. I mean, these are rich biblical gospel themes. You would think the Bible would go, and by the way, it's obvious that (sighs) stealing someone's liberty can't be close to the heart of God, right? Why doesn't the Bible just say, crush it? Here's your answer. The gospel's goal is not social adjustment. It's spiritual transformation. The point wasn't to rearrange the furniture, rearrange things socially. The point is to change people from the inside and affect change. Does the gospel, did the gospel bring about the end of slavery? I submit to you that it did. Now, it took a long time, and there's a lot of irony here in the United States, given our moorings and all that. But, I mean, what, what, else, what else does the gospel do? It, it hones in on the inside of a person and says, hey, 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 get your understanding right. God's your maker. Your maker gets to decide how you're supposed to live. Your maker gets to decide how you're supposed to interact. And, by the way, your maker expelled you from his presence because of iniquity. But that maker loved you anyway and supplied the righteousness of God so that you could be washed clean and brought close. 
if the maker, if the savior, if the redeemer, if this God did that with you and you and you and you and this slave and that master and this slave and that master, and then don't you know that we're all on an even plane? That not only are we image bearers, but uh, God's ultimate gospel intent isn't rearranging furniture on a, on a social landscape. Um, it's affecting individual souls from the inside so that change comes, transformation comes. That's how God liberates, ladies and gentlemen. From his own personal power to the inside of a person, he changes hearts. You know, uh, I close with this. We, we pray. In fact, Dr. Young prayed at this, this uh, first hour. He, he led everybody in the Lord's Prayer. And we, we, we love that prayer. We say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that's very easy to pray when we pray it like this. Thy kingdom come, you know, out there in the screwed up world. Thy will be done, you know, out there in the screwed up world. But the first place we are to pray that is thy kingdom come here. Thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, in me as it is in heaven. I mean, that's the, that's the laser beam part of that prayer. It's not just out there in general. It's all things, and that includes me. And that's why Paul can write these things. That's why he doesn't say, hey, abolish slavery, everybody. But is he saying abolish slavery? Yeah. He's saying that God changes hearts and that nothing impedes or usurps the gospel. Father, forgive us for um, wanting to take your word and disassociate ourselves from it. We want to think that it applies to things out there and situations out there and um, contexts that uh, no longer affect us, but these are not obsolete things. These are these are current realities and struggles, and we need your help. So would you help us, Lord? Um, help us know that at, at various times every day, we're in positions of strength. And various times every day, we're in positions of subservience. Help us respond in a Christ-like way, in a holistic way that cares for the welfare and flourishing of others. We pray it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.